Well, as I sit alone in our sanctuary this morning, and as you sit in your homes, the cruelty of this pandemic is particularly wearisome to me. On a typical Pentecost Sunday, there are five red banners scooping down from our balcony in order to meet at the apex of our choir loft directly above me. But there are no banners this morning because there are no people. And I miss the banners. And I miss you, the people of First Presbyterian Church. We are where we need to be. I do not doubt that. We are at home out of love for our neighbor as cases of COVID-19 begin to rise in Northwest Arkansas. But I wish you were here with me so that we could celebrate Pentecost together in person. I wish we were singing together under the red glow of the banners flying overhead. I wish we could walk down to the gym after church and ruin our lunches together by eating too much cake. But this is where God has us in this moment. I think it's important for us to be able to acknowledge our sorrow at the persistence of this virus and the uncertainty it has introduced into all of life. I also think it is important, though, that at the same time, we continue to return to the life of Christ in order to find hope in the midst of our laments. If you read the Psalms of Lament, all but two of them take a turn at some point, where the psalmist, having laid out his complaints before God, begins to remind himself of God's character, and a sliver of light slices through the darkness, like a door has been cracked inside an unlit room. Recalling God's character and his actions in history keep us from dipping into despair. Fixing our eyes on him, we are able to move forward despite our heavy hearts, sluggish bodies, and anxious minds. And we're going to discipline ourselves to do this together now, to lift our eyes off of ourselves, and to consider him instead. And we are going to take a turn in the midst of lamenting the current state of our world in order to consider what we can learn about God from the events of Pentecost. And we will find that what we know about him, this eternal God, will help us to endure the painful realities that we are experiencing in the present. There were two passages that Jane read for you earlier, Psalm 110 and Acts 2. Psalm 110 is, is quoted in that Acts 2 passage, and it answers a question that was on the minds of those present that Pentecost day. The question that everyone was asking is, what is going on here? On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit empowered and enlivened the people to preach the gospel so that their words were intelligible to people who had gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world. In verse 8, we read that those who heard the gospel being preached in their language were amazed and astonished. They said to each other, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? 
That was the question of the day. What does this mean? What's going on here? Some of those present humorously attributed the unfamiliar babbling to drunkenness. But Peter offered a different explanation. In a redemptive moment for the apostle who had once denied Jesus, Peter stood up and preached a sermon explaining the significance of this moment. This was not drunkenness, but a sign that the king of the world has just been enthroned. In verses 32 and 33, Peter says that Jesus was raised up and being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The spirit-empowered babbling that took place that day was evidence that Jesus had been enthroned as king of the world. Now, why this was a, a sign of Jesus' enthronement is a question for another sermon, but suffice it to say that the nations are his coronation gift, as it were. He ascended to his throne in the heavenly places and was asked what he would want as a coronation gift, and his reply was, give me the nations. So the Spirit was sent to win the nations for this king by making the gospel known to them in a way they could understand. The spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel to the nations was a sign of his coronation. The king had gone from the grave to the right hand of God, a position of greatness, strength, goodness, and divinity. And his kingdom covers the entire world. And to further make the point that Jesus was enthroned as king of the world, Peter quotes from Psalm 110, our Old Testament reading for this morning. Peter's interpretation of this psalm is that David is not talking about himself in Psalm 110, but was prophetically speaking about one of his descendants to come who would be greater than him. As Peter says in verse 34, David did not ascend into heaven. And yet the first verse of Psalm 110 tells the story of a Davidic king who did, who ascended to the right hand of God in the heavens. This is Jesus, the son of David, and the son of God. God is therefore instructing Jesus in that opening verse of the psalm to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And from there, the entire psalm reads as a divine pronouncement of blessing, an endorsement of Jesus as the great future Davidic king. It tells of the great and cosmic spiritual battle that he will wage and win from his exalted position. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Psalm 110 is the perfect Pentecost song. The spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel that day was intended to be a sign of Jesus' enthronement in the heavens. And Psalm 110 tells us about both the nature of his kingdom as he reigns victorious over the world. There are two things to note about the nature of Christ's kingdom as it is spoken of in Psalm 110. The first is that it lacks the traditional borders of earthly kingdoms. 
Indeed, it is a spiritual kingdom unbound by either time or space. Having begun over 2,000 years ago, it continues to this day and will continue forever, world without end. It doesn't have the physical borders that one might consider essential for an earthly kingdom either. As verse 2 says, he rules in the midst of his enemies. All throughout the world, sometimes in the most unlikely places, you will find pockets of men and women who profess allegiance to Jesus Christ and are fighting to remain faithful to him in the midst of an antagonistic culture. In some of even the most secular, humanistic, or pagan places on earth, even there, to mix metaphors on you, this shepherd has sheep of his own. And as he watches over his sheep wherever they are in order to keep their ears always tuned to his voice, so that whatever affliction or temptation happens to them in the body, they may follow him even into death. And even then he tends them and cares for them. Though their bodies may be disposed of, still their souls persevere in faith through his great power and one day will be reunited with a body made new and glorious and everlasting. He does not always spare the lives of those who confess his name in this life, but he does reward them for their faithfulness with life everlasting. Did not Jesus himself say that whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake We'll, we'll find it. People from every nation in this world bring glory to God daily by dying to themselves for the sake of Jesus Christ. People that look and sound different, who dress differently, who listen to different music and eat different foods, who organize their family structures differently than we do, these people are nonetheless His. And being His, they are also ours. They belong to us and we belong to them. So that regardless of the color of our skin and the languages we speak, we are made one in this great Davidic king, Jesus. Our calling is the same. We seek the same end, which is to be found in him when this life is all over. For the Christian, therefore, there is always a higher allegiance than the country or even family into which a person is born. Jesus redefines the whole concept of enemies and has established in and through himself a unified kingdom out of a distinct and disparate people. The animosity that exists, therefore, between the black and white communities in our country should be utterly absent from the, from the church, where we exist as family, children of the king. There's no room in Christ for suspicion and hatred. There's plenty of potential for repentance and healing as we seek him together. There's plenty of potential for lamenting a confusion of our allegiances and allowing anything to divide us when Christ the King has made us one through his blood, shed for us. His kingdom lacks the traditional boundaries of earthly kingdoms, whether they be as large as a country or as small as a family. It is a tree in which birds of all kinds nest together in harmony. This is the reality of Jesus' kingdom that Psalm 110 points out. And it points out a second reality for us as well. I alluded, it, I alluded to it already. It's that Jesus has utterly redefined the meaning of enemies. 
by the way in which he became king. In verse 4, we discover that this king is also a priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, the verse begins. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is this shadowy figure who first appears in Genesis 14 when he blesses Abraham, and Abraham in turn gives him a tenth of everything he had won in a recent battle. Who he is is a question for another day. But the significance for us this morning is that Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. Genesis 14 states that he was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. And this Davidic king of Psalm 110 is like him, both king and priest. He is both a king who rules in the midst of his enemies and a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this dual office is important because it tells us how this king rose to power and won for himself a people and a kingdom. The psalm is full of battle imagery. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole earth. The king of Psalm 110 wins victory for himself by subduing his enemies by force. But what does it mean for this king to also be a priest, and for this priest king to find ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Because in Jesus, we see no shattering of kings. He leaves no trail of corpses in his wake. This is what the disciples were expecting. It's why they asked the question that Connor Young did such a good job of exploring last week. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought Jesus was going to wage war against the physical enemies of Israel and put an end to the Roman occupation. But Jesus was reorienting their view of the world by holding up for them a mirror in which they could see themselves. You want to know who God considers his enemies? You. He holds the mirror up for all of us. This is one of the purposes of God's law, the Ten Commandments. It's a mirror in which we can see that we have offended God by violating his divine laws for humanity. We are all guilty before him, and Jesus takes our eyes off of others, and he sets them squarely on ourselves so that we see the real problem, our great need for redemption. The problem is that this world is in need of redemption, beginning with the person you see in the mirror of God's law. And this is the work that Jesus, the priest king, is actively engaged in this very moment. The Apostle Paul describes the experience of redemption in Colossians 1. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He won for himself a people and a kingdom, not through violence or war, but by offering himself as a sacrifice on behalf of the people who had offended him. He is a king who wins wars through self-sacrifice, love, and grace, for he is also a priest. He gave his life so that we wouldn't have to die. He was estranged from God so that we might be forgiven. And it is this love that is actually powerful enough to bring change to our world. 
And so he calls on his people to join him in the war he is waging against sin and unrighteousness by acting as priests in this world, pursuing forgiveness and justice and reconciliation at our own expense. This is the battlefield vision that comes out of the third verse of Psalm 110. The priest king is headed to battle and his people come out to join him. But instead of being clothed with armor and weapons, they are clothed with holy garments. They come dressed for priestly work. Because the work of the church is not accomplished through physical violence, but through a selfless pursuit of reconciliation on behalf of Christ. Our instruments are forgiveness and mercy and love. We inherited them from our Davidic priest king, Jesus Christ. They may seem weak to the world, but they are the means by which Jesus won for himself and established a kingdom in this world that continues to grow among the many people and nations of this world. He's in the heavens now, seated at the right hand of God, reigning over us and through us by the Holy Spirit which was poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost. And putting on the Spirit, therefore, and being dressed for priestly work, let us march out to join Jesus in his battle for the souls of this world by calling all people to repentance and telling them of the love that God has for them, that many might be forgiven their many sins and peace and justice would be established in this world on account of our unity in Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.